0: Well, we're continuing in our series through Genesis, and uh, we're specifically looking at the life of Abraham. And So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to our passage today, Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13, we'll be reading all 18 verses together, and uh, like I love to say, it's the only perfect part of the message. So may God bless the reading of his holy and his sufficient word. So Abraham went up from Egypt he and his wife and all that he had and Lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock in silver and in gold and he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord and Lot, who went with, with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar, This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, where which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Amen. The word of the Lord. Well, in addition to being a philosophy major in college, uh, I took several economics classes. I almost double majored, but then my senior year, I figured out that I could graduate without having any Monday and Friday classes. <laughs> so I opted out of the double major. And I went for the low-hanging fruit of a very relaxed senior class. And also the upper divs in economics are really hard. Just a lot of calculus, and, and I just couldn't hang. So that happened. Well, um, the first thing you learn in Econ 101 is, is about scarcity. It's about scarcity. and In economics, scarcity is the problem of having seemingly unlimited human wants in a world of limited human resources. That's scarcity. Unlimited human wants in a world of limited human resources. Simply put, the problem of scarcity reflects supply and demand. And in a marketplace, when supply is low and demand is high, what happens? The prices go up, right? There's a lot of scarcity that's why professional athletes like LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, Steph Curry, they get paid the big bucks because not very many people can do what they do. That's the reason why a condo in Malibu costs more than a house in Bakersfield because there's only so much beachfront property and there's a lot of land in Bakersfield, right, to build a house. It's the reason why your kids fight over the iPad. There's only one and there's two of them. That's, that's scarcity. Scarcity not only affects wages, house prices, and kids' toys, we see it in almost every aspect of our lives. Each and every one of us feels the scarcity of time. Whether you're a student, at the end of a busy semester or a quarter, you feel the scarcity. You wish you had more time to study. You wish you hadn't procrastinated. You wish like God would just give you a miracle because you just don't have enough time. Or maybe for the rest of us, uh, we have a busy weekend. We can't believe Monday's coming in like less than 24 hours, and we're like, "Oh my gosh, where has all the time come?" We look at our bank accounts. Uh, Where has all the time gone? We look at all of our at our bank accounts, and we see the scarcity of finances each month as bills have to be paid. And if you've read that book, Rich Dad Poor Dad, we we got to figure out how to make more passive income, right? Well would your friends consider you a generous person? Okay, we all deal with scarcity. How do you handle that? How do we steward over our resources? Would your friends and family members say, no, this person is generous? Would you consider yourself a generous person, right? Do you believe that, well, if you had more, you would, you would give more, right? Maybe our excuse of not being generous is we just we just don't have enough. There's too much scarcity in my life. Do you believe that if you had more time, you would, you would participate more? Whether it's uh, for your children's school programs, whether it's in, on, in uh, campus life as a student, whether it's here in church, that if you just had more time, you would participate more. If you had more energy, perhaps you'd serve more. You'd get more involved in the community. You would help others more. That if you had more money, you would give more. You would give more to the poor. You would give more to the community. You'd give more to the church. You'd give more and, and support missionaries and, and, and global projects. Well, I think that's how most of us think. If I just had more, I would give more, right? If I didn't have so much scarcity, I, I'd just be so much more generous in my life. But I want to challenge that, 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 that's just a, that. That's actually just a half-truth. That's a half-truth that we tell ourselves, Sure, the empty nester may have more free time than the new parent, right? Uh, We have a couple empty nesters here, and and as soon as your kids go off to college, you're like, second life, my second life has begun. And so, yeah, there there would be a little bit more disposable time than the parent of of two toddlers and, and infants. Sure, that working single adult has more money, more financial resources than our college students on financial aid. Right? Absolutely, that, that's, that's true. But that doesn't really help us live a generous life today, does it? All right? Just saying that if I had more, I would give more. Eventually, I'll serve more. Eventually, I'll do more. What that actually does, when we tell ourselves that half-truth, it convinces us to postpone our generosity to the future. Okay? Think about that. When we keep telling ourselves, one day I will, eventually I will, you are convincing yourself, to postpone your generosity to the future, that next year, in five years, in 10 years, I will be the generous person I eventually know I will become. But friends, I can tell you now, if you don't practice generosity today, there's no guarantee and you're more likely not to practice generosity in the future, okay? If we don't steward over the limited resources we have today, with purpose and generosity and godliness, there's no guarantee that one day we're just going to wake up and say, oh my gosh, I'm not supposed to live for myself. Oh my gosh, I'm not supposed to spend all of my money on me. Oh my gosh, I don't have to spend all of my time doing exactly what I want to do. That's something we need to consider today, not wait for our kids to get out of the house and then figure out, oh, then I'll be a really devoted, solid Christian. Now, I've never met anyone who didn't want to be generous. I didn't, I've never met anyone who didn't value generosity. But we've rarely met enough people who are, who actually are. And we excuse our lack of generosity with our lack of resources. But I want to share with you the main idea of the sermon today. And, and it's a one-liner. If you guys are taking notes, please write it down. If it's the one thing that we, we remember today, I thought I, that would be an answered prayer. And it's simply this. I believe that the path to true generosity is not paved by our abundance, but in God's abundance, okay? The path to true generosity, biblical generosity, it's not paved by our abundance, but by God's abundance. It doesn't come from us earning a lot and making a lot and carving out more and more free time like I did dropping a bunch of classes and saying, oh my gosh, now I have all day Monday and all day Friday to give to Jesus. Now I can live the Christian life. No, it's not about my resources or my found abundance. It's about realizing that in God, there is great abundance. And when I realize and experience and receive the abundance of God, that creates a pathway to true generosity. Now, I want to share with you very honestly, I wasn't planning on preaching on generosity just because today is Thanksgiving Sunday. Uh, I've been here for two years. You guys know I'm not wired that way. I do not do themed sermons. So Father's Day, I don't preach on the Father's love. Mother's Day, I don't preach on biblical motherhood. Uh, Fourth of July, I'm not going to preach like God bless America, right? (laughs) Right? That's just not my style. And so someone actually asked me, he's like, oh, are you gonna preach on generosity for Thanksgiving? I'm like, no, 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 no. that's not my style. Wherever we are in our Genesis series is what I'm gonna preach on, All right? And then God has a sense of humor and he said, well, last week it was Genesis 12 and that was Abram's call. This week it's Genesis 13 and it's about Abram being generous to his brother Lot. It's about Abraham foregoing so many of his rights, giving up um, his privileges, To allow his nephew uh, first choice in the promised land, I'm going to unpack our main idea with two questions: Why do we struggle with generosity? Okay, why do we struggle with it? Um, And second, right? Second, how does God motivate our generosity? And lastly, I'll, I'll just tap into how do we get that abundance that that I was talking about in that that main idea because I talked about, hey, generosity flows from God's abundance. Well, how do we receive that abundance? And I'm going to close with that point. So why do we struggle with it? How does God motivate our generosity? And then how can we get that abundance so that we can live out true biblical generosity? Well, here's the answer that I have. We struggle with generosity because we believe that scarcity is our problem to deal with. Okay? I think you and I, when we experience scarcity, scarcity of time, Scarcity of energy, scarcity of money, and and things like that. We feel like we have to figure out the solution. That's my problem. I'm the head of this household, or I'm a grown adult, and I have to deal with it, okay? And that's where we really experience struggle. Now, we didn't cover the last section of chapter 12 last week, but it's the story of Abram taking his family down to Egypt, Genesis 12 has this calling of Abram and God calls him into the promised land. Abram obeys and he takes his family and he takes his nephew Lot and they go into the promised land. But here at the end of 12, we're told that there's a famine in the promised land. And so Abram, as the head of the household, he takes his family down into Egypt because there's a scarcity of food in the land that God told them to go to. So he's like, okay, God, you told me to come to Canaan there's a famine in Canaan you know what i'm going to do i'm going to go to egypt egypt has the nile egypt is 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 flourishing we don't want to die here we're going to go to egypt now what's fascinating about the end of chapter 12 is that there's very little mention of god in that story there's very little mention of god at the end of chapter 12 when abram goes down to egypt god doesn't speak God doesn't speak. God doesn't lead and call Abram to go down to Egypt. And even when Abram gets there, we're not told that Abram does what, what he was doing previously when he entered into the promised land, which was building altars, calling on the name of God and worshiping God. And so as Abram's going into the promised land, he's doing all these amazing things and worshiping God and giving God recognition and building altars for him. And then he goes into Egypt and he does none of that. God's not leading, God's not speaking, Abram's not worshiping. And all of this tells us that something is going wrong in Abraham's story. See, it's a story where Abram takes everything in his own hands and he almost leads to disaster. He almost leads his family to disaster, disaster for himself. He thought the problem of the famine was something he had to deal with. He thought that that scarcity, that food shortage, that danger, that trial, he had to, to provide the answers. He had to assess the situation and uh, make, make, a, make a call. Well, God told Abram to go to Canaan, but out of fear of famine, Abram makes the calculated decision to go down to Egypt. He's afraid for his life. Do you know what happened there? He's afraid for his life. And so what he does, he's like, oh my gosh, Sarai, you are beautiful. The Egyptians are going to want to take you and they're going to kill me. So let's just tell them you're my sister take off the wedding ring, all right, let's act like we're not married and you spare my life. And uh, any husband knows that that's not a good idea. That's not a good way to make your wife happy, honor and protect your wife. Well, that's what he does. He tells the Egyptians that Sarai is not my wife. She's my sister. And so what happens is that she gets taken by Pharaoh to become one of Pharaoh's wives. Well, God intervenes because God's like, no, 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 no. Abraham, Sarai is not to be Pharaoh's wife. He's to, she's to be your wife. And so God intervenes, he causes great plagues to fall upon Egypt, Sarai's return to Abram, and then they leave Egypt. So that's pretty much what happens at the end of Genesis 12. And here we see a great cautionary tale. It's the tale that, that when we face, in the face of scarcity and fear, our first reaction is to try and take control of things with our own decisions and our own calculations. Abram didn't consider God. We're told that there's a famine in the land and we're not told that Abram prayed. We're told that there's a famine in the land and and Abram didn't seek God's help. He thought he had to deal with it himself and solve his own problems. Doesn't Doesn't this sound like something we've all done at some point in time? Now, maybe we haven't sold out our wives as sisters. I hope none of us have and none of us will, right? But I know that we have all at some point told a lie, a small lie, maybe a big lie, to keep ourselves from getting out of trouble. I'm sure that in times of distress, we've all um, been tempted to to shade the truth, to cover ourselves, to cover our businesses, to protect ourselves. We felt like maybe we had to cut corners on a project because we're on a hard deadline. Perhaps we've gone back on a commitment to help someone or do something because things were just too busy or too tight that month. But what Abram learned and what we can learn from him is that in times of trouble and scarcity, the first person we need to trust in is not ourselves, but in God. The first person we should look to in times of scarcity, in times of distress, is not ourselves, not our wit, our ability, or intelligence. It's 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 God. So here in Genesis 13, we actually see a changed Abram. A man who had to go down to Egypt get shamed, be humiliated and come back up into the promised land. We see a changed Abram. We're told that the families of Abram and Lot have left Egypt and they've returned to the promised land and God has made them very wealthy. Abram's rich in silver and gold. Lot and Abram are both rich in livestock. So much to the point that they again run into this problem of scarcity. This time it's not famine. It's this time that the land cannot support both their herds. There isn't enough food and water for all the animals that Abram and Lot have acquired. So the herdsmen, right, the, the, the shepherds, or maybe for the, the, the Midwest, like the cowboys of Abram and Lot, they start fighting. They start fighting for water rights. They start fighting for resources, fighting and quarreling for food. And we are told by Moses, who is our narrator, why the land couldn't support them. It's not because the promised land was no good. See, that would have been odd for God to say, I'm gonna lead you into a place of, of milk and honey, this promised land, this great place. And then Abram and Lot get there and just the land can't support them. Then that's, that's a bit of a bait and switch, right? Uh, something's wrong there. It's not that the promised land was no good. And it's not that there was famine. Instead, Moses tells us that it's because the Canaanites and the Perizzites were in the land. So here we were. here they are, Abram and Lot, they're, they're entering in the promised land, but they're aliens. They're, they're, it's not their land yet. The Canaanites and the Parasites are living there. And so they have to live in between them. They have to live in the leftovers and there just weren't enough resources of food and water for Abram and Lot to continue on together. Now, Abram, what, what could he have done in this situation? Simply put, he could have asserted his power and authority over Lot. After all, God made all his promises to Abram not to Lot. So you know what Abram could have done? He could have pulled the God card. He could have been like, God, Lot, Lot, you know, God told me. God gave me the promised land. You need to just leave. You need to figure it out because this is my land, not your land, right? God's going to give this to me and, and, and my household and not you. Abram didn't do that. Also, we have to remember that Lot was not Abram's equal. He was his nephew, Right, Lot was Abram's nephew. And so Abram could have pulled the seniority card as well. Abram could have chosen the best land for himself and told Lot to go fend for himself. But that's not what Abram does. We see in the text that Abram makes a generous offer to Lot and allows him to choose first. Imagine that, guys. Imagine that. Abram looks at Lot with love. He considers him, his, he's, his, he's his family. He's his kinsman. And he says, you know what? Wherever you want to go, you choose first, I'll go the opposite direction. I want you to, I want you to have the best land. I want you to choose first. Well, where did Abraham learn this? Where did Abraham learn this? Right? Where did he learn such generosity and kindness? I believe it came from his failure in Egypt. I believe it came from realizing and learning that Abraham can't try and and grasp and attain his own resources, that they really all have to come from God and his hand. You see, through his experience in Egypt, Abram learned not to fear scarcity. He learned not to fear scarcity, but to trust in God's provision. So that's where generosity is birthed from, realizing that God is our provider realizing that God is our deliverer and really believing that, right? I think for so many of us, we believe that in our heads, but our hands, our our actions, our priorities, our decisions all reflect this idea that, that we have to be the solution. We have to figure things out. And Abraham is a testimony to a God who's willing to fight for him, a God who will rescue him, a God who will speak and reveal himself to him over and over again, even when he's in rebellion. Even when he's in the wrong place at the wrong time, God is faithful and God is present. Abraham sees that and so he's changed. And that's, the, that, that's, the, the, that's where Abraham's motivation came from, to be generous. Well, where is it? Let's continue to develop this. How does God further motivate our generosity? Earlier, I shared that the main idea of today's message is that the path to true generosity is not paved by our abundance, but in God's abundance. Our motivation is not an abundance we have in ourselves, but an abundance that God provides. Let's see this in the text, verse nine. This is what Moses writes. And this is what Abram says. Is not the whole land before you? Separate, Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Once again, Abraham's offer, incredibly generous, absolutely selfless, and it sprang from his faith in God's provision. Unfortunately, Lot didn't learn this. He didn't learn this from Abraham. And we actually have some important clues that tell us that Lot made both a bad and a selfish decision. Let's just break down what Lot's thought process was because Lot was feeling the scarcity. Lot was realizing, oh my gosh, okay, um, Abraham's pretty much gonna split ways with me. I am now the head of my household. I gotta make sure that I do what's best for my people, my animals, my clan, So this is what he does. Um, These are his problems. First, Lot didn't defer to the head of the family. Instead, he took Abram up on his offer. He didn't even fake, do the fake humility gesture that you and I always do. When someone offers you something you really want, do you say yes immediately? No, we're kind of sheepish. We'll say, no, no, it's okay. And then they insist and you say, okay, right? (laughs) So many like, you know, our, our brothers at the Resolve coffee bar, Brian, he's always like, Pastor Mike, you know, let me get you a drink. And I'm like, no, no, it's okay. And he's like, no, no, really, really. I really want to get, I'm like, okay, okay. I'll, I'll take a vanilla latte. And then, uh, <laughs> right. But I just can't say yes on the first one because that's just selfish, right? That's just, that's just too direct. Well, Lot didn't even do that. Lot just said, okay, I'm going to just size it up. And he just chose. And also we see in the text, what is it? What does Moses write? Lot chose for himself. Lot chose for himself, revealing that his motivation, his decision was self-serving. He wasn't thinking about, oh, what would be best for Abram? What would be best for my uncle, my cousins, my family members? No, I'm going to choose for myself. Second thing that we see, Lot lifted up his eyes to the land and made a decision that he thought would best serve him. And he chose that land that was well watered. And very much like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. Well, we know what just happened to Abram and Lot in Egypt. Egypt shouldn't be the paradise. Egypt shouldn't be the standard. And yet Lot was like, wow, this is just like Egypt. I'm gonna choose that land. That should be a negative indicator. Also, can you recall what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Think about what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. When Eve looked at the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. This is what Genesis tells us. She saw that it was good for food. She saw that it was a delight to her eyes. So she took some and she ate it. What the Genesis account is telling us about Adam and Eve is that with their own eyes, with their own wisdom, they made a decision apart from the knowledge of God apart from the will of God, all for themselves. And Lot is doing the same thing. He's sizing it up for himself, making a decision for himself, deciding for himself it was good. And lastly, Moses foreshadows the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot's like, that's where the so- that, that Sodom and Gomorrah? That looks like the, a great piece of land? I'm gonna go. And he goes and settles by, by Sodom and Gomorrah. And we're gonna hear more of that story later in weeks to come. But Abram, Abram believed in God's abundance and he trusted in God's promises. Alan Ross, a commentator wrote, the one who believed that God promised to give him the land did not have to reserve it for himself. Okay, Abraham knew that if God promised him Canaan, the land of milk and honey, Abram didn't have to reserve it for himself. He didn't have to call shotgun. On Lot, He didn't have to go around and, and fight the Canaanites and fight the Perizzites right on site and say, this is my land, not yours. No, Abraham knew in God's timing, according to God's plan and God's blessing, all of those promises were going to come true. You see, church, Abraham saw the whole land and he saw the big picture. He knew that all of it belonged to God and that his job wasn't to claim it for himself. In that moment, he cared more for peace, and the well-being of Lot than he did for his own security. Abram acted out of generosity, not because he had so much to be generous with, guys. Just just remember that, okay? Abraham doesn't have enough land. Lot doesn't have enough land. There is scarcity. There's a lack of resources. Abraham still has to take care of his family. He still has to take care of his herd. He didn't it wasn't because, "Oh my gosh, I've got a 1000 acres. Lot, just take whatever you want." No. Abraham was generous, not because he had so much to be generous with, but because he trusted in God's promise. He knew that God had abundance in him. He knew what it meant to take God at his word and he didn't have to reserve his spot. He didn't have to fight for his spot that God would fight for him. Church, do you believe likewise? When there is scarcity in your life, do you reserve your spot? When there's scarcity In your life, do you grip harder? Do you hold on tighter? Do you fight more for the things that you want, the things that you tell yourself you need? God is telling us to reconsider, right? God is telling us to reconsider. Consider what it means to trust in him. Consider what it means to be generous. Now there is a reward for generosity. And I wanna tell us how to, to, to receive the things that God Wants to give us. Our passage closes with God speaking again and assuring Abraham that he will make good on his promises. Let's go to verse 14. Verse 14. The Lord said to Abraham, After after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes. And look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land for I will give it to you. Okay. You know what God was saying to Abraham? Or Abram at this point. God was saying, I'll give you everything. I am going to give you everything. Everything you don't have right now, I will give you. Abraham at that time, probably past 75 years old, his wife, 65 plus, no children. God promised offspring. Abraham, God again says, I will give you offspring. Abraham's a nomad just wandering around, you know, Ur, Haran, Canaan, Egypt, Canaan again, and God's like, I promise I will give you land. I will give you a home. All these things that you don't have, all these things that you want, all these things that I promised you, I will give you. Now, there's something in me, and I think something in a lot of us that have a hard time receiving from God. If I asked you Sunday, what is worship all about? And I think a lot of people say, we gotta give God glory. We gotta give God worship, and that's that's true, right? That's absolutely true. Um, but there's so much that God wants us to receive on Sundays. He wants us to receive forgiveness. He wants us to receive grace. He wants to receive. He wants us to receive community and love and friendship from the body of Christ. He wants us to receive and hear His Word more than us just spouting a ton of words to Him. God has things to give to us, and yet there's something in us that's not that's not always open and ready for that posture. The moment a pastor tells us that God wants to bless you and give you everything, what do you think? Man, this guy's a prosperity preacher, (laughs) right? If I say God wants to give you everything, if I tell you God wants to give you his absolute best, you're going to think, man, Michael just is just tickling our ears, right? What's he going to, what's he going to sell? What's the catch? What's the catch? But God, God tells that to Abraham. He says, lift your eyes, look around, look to the north, the south, the east, the west, all of it is yours. Count the dust. And if you can count it, that's the number of offspring you're gonna have. No catch. God's not preaching a prosperity gospel. God's simply saying, I'm gonna give you everything. And if that's God's word, even for us today, if God's like, I wanna give you everything, beloved. I want to give you my best. We're going to kind of see like, ah, you know, it's okay. I want to give you my best, right? God, it's not about me. It's not about my comfort. Oh, it's not about my happiness. It's about your glory. There's something in us that like would prefer that posture. I remember um, I was in high school and uh, it was kind of parents appreciation night. We want to have family worship. And uh, my youth pastor was like, you know what we need to do? We need to do a foot washing. And kids, students, you're going to wash your parents' feet. And we thought it was an awesome idea. Oh, that's awesome. I've never seen my parents so uncomfortable. <laughs> I've, I've never seen my parents so uncomfortable. My, my, like I was washing my dad's feet and I'm praying. I'm trying to be real spiritual and, and bless him. Like Jesus, bless the disciples. I'm trying to be Christ-like to my parents. And my dad is just so uncomfortable. And like after like, like I just ru- rubbed one of his feet. Like, all right. All right. You know, in Korean, he's like, come on, come on, right? He's like, that's enough. He just couldn't handle it. My parents couldn't handle the idea of their son serving them and washing their feet and blessing them. They're like, no, 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 I'm supposed to provide for you, right? I'm supposed to care for you. I'm supposed to bless you. And I think there's something in us that comes to church in our posture to God and say, God, I'm supposed to bless you. And when God says, no, I want to bless you, we're like, ah, what does that mean? what does that look like? That's okay. You know, like, you know, I'm good. I just want to bless your name, right? This is what God says in Psalm 50. Psalm 50, God says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. I do not eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the most high and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Okay. You know what God says right there? He says, I don't need you. I don't need your offerings. I don't need the blood of bulls and goats, or even the 10% we give every month for those of us who tithe. God's not like, hey, 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 like, that is not what we, that is not what this is all about. We are not in like, business or Aaron, or, or, We're not doing transactions here. I don't need any of that. God says, you know what you need? You need me. You need to call upon me upon the, on that day of trouble and I will glorify or I will deliver you. And that's how God gets glory. Not because we sing, sing in tune or sing three-part harmonies. That's not what glorifies God. It's in our moments of scarcity in our moments of distress and need, we look to God and say, God, who who have I in heaven but you? God, who will deliver me but you? Who is the hope for my family but you? Who will save us from our sins but you? Who will redeem me and my my, my children and my, my loved ones from our sins and our dysfunction but you? And that's when God gets the glory that's when God gets the glory. So now I wanna ask you this, what if our generosity, what if our worship and our thanksgiving and our offerings flowed not from the mere belief that all we have belongs to God, but that all that he has belongs to us? Okay, think about this. Okay, I grew up in the church, always being told, Michael, everything you own belongs to God, okay? Everything, you know? And so uh, you got to give your 10% and you got to serve and you, know, you belong to God, you belong to God. And that's true. You know what I didn't grow up hearing? That all he had was mine. I didn't grow up hearing that, oh, God gave himself for me. That God has, has given his riches and his best for me. Why? Because it sounds like prosperity gospel. It sounds so self-serving. It sounds so man-made. You know what Paul writes in Corinthians? 2 Corinthians 8, 9. This is what Paul writes. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Do you hear that? Why did Jesus come unto this earth And Paul says, one of the main reasons why he came, why the second person in the Trinity condescended onto onto earth, took on the full form of a man, lived a perfect life, died on the cross and rose again. Why? Why did he become so lowly and so poor? So that you can become rich. So that you and I could become rich. And in that moment, you might be like, Pastor Mike, look at my bank account. I am not rich. 2 Corinthians 8 does not apply to me. And Paul tells us, no, there's a different kind of richness, a different kind of abundance that the gospel has in store for us. Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse two. This is what Paul says. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And in verse eight, this is what he writes. We are treated as impostors and yet true as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and not yet killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Okay, there's a paradox in the Christian faith that Paul is talking about, that we can be poor yet rich. We can have nothing and yet possess everything. How and why? How does this happen? How do you and I receive the riches of God and the abundance of God, that incorruptible inheritance of God? The answer is this, through Jesus Christ, his one and only son. My friend gave this sermon illustration. He said, the the moment he became a father, he understood the gospel in a greater depth. he he understood the gospel in a greater depth because he'd never known something so precious to him. His motorcycle, not that precious compared to his daughter. His guitar, his laptop, his car, his house. Nothing is as precious as the life and the blood of his only child. And that's when he understood that God had truly given him everything. When our father gave his one and only begotten son to us, that we might be ransomed, that we might be saved, that we might be redeemed. God truly gave us everything. Parents, think about that. If you give up your child, the life of your child, have you not given up everything? If there's a ransom and they say, I want your house for your child, you'll say, you can have it. If they say, I want your business, you can have it. I want every account, every stock, every bond, you can have it, I want your life. Every parent would say, you can have it. And the father gave his one and only begotten son so that you would be saved. Do you realize when you accept Jesus, God has given you everything. He has given you everything. Church, we are to live out of that abundance. We are to live out of that abundance. And so yes, our bank accounts can be empty. Our health can be withering away. And yet we are rich, yet we are loved. We are always secure because God has given us everything. Church, do you believe that? Would you receive the blessedness Would you receive the richness? Would you receive the gift of God through his son, Jesus Christ, who loved you to the point of death? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you did not just send your son, Jesus Christ, you gave your son, Jesus Christ, to be our ransom, to be our Savior. And Father, I pray that right now, in this moment, we would come to realize the gift of Jesus. We would see what a generous and a powerful and a life-giving act that was for us. And I pray, Lord, that in this moment that we would receive Christ again. Or maybe for some of us that we would receive Christ for the very first time and in doing so, would you fill our hearts with your abundance? Would you fill our hearts with your life? Would you fill our hearts with your joy? And would you allow that to overflow? Would you allow that to overflow into our our relationships? Would you make us a generous people? Would you make us a loving people because Christ has first loved us? Would you make us a sacrificial people because we realize that Christ has sacrificed everything for us? Would you make us an obedient people because we realize that the obedience of Christ took him to the cross and that obedience has purchased for us everlasting life. Father, I wanna pray for anyone right now that is struggling with distress and scarcity in their life. We do not wanna water down our earthly struggles whether we have family members who are ill, whether we are behind on our mortgage payments, whether we are in fear of failing out of school or losing our jobs, we are not here to put put spiritual band-aids on our hearts and go back to it on Monday. Lord, I pray that you would produce in us genuine faith, faith that you will be our provider and faith to know that whatever we might lose in this life or in this world, we are rich in Christ and we are secure in Christ. Would you give us your peace? Would you help us to know your presence right now? Thank you in Jesus' name I pray.